turn to Romans chapter 5. If you need a Bible, raise your hand and that can be arranged. Romans chapter 5, back to the gospel according to Paul. Last week when we were in Romans 5 verses 3, 4, and 5, I, I, I was running a metaphor for a minute. I was comparing Paul to a master craftsman, to a mason. And I was comparing how Paul has been building his argument for the gospel, his case for Jesus saving us. Like a, like a mason building a wall, brick by brick, carefully the brick, the mortar, scraping it just so, the next brick with the mortar joining it just so. And, and someone afterwards suggested to me, they said, the, the whole mason metaphor, that's good, that works, but even better would be an artist painting a picture. Even better would be a composer authoring a symphony. And, and I kind of like that because it, it, it captures both Paul's impeccable logic, laying argument upon argument, brush stroke upon brush stroke, note upon note, chord upon chord, but, but it also captures the elegance, the artistry with which Paul crafts his case for the gospel. And, and if we take that symphony analogy and we run with it just a little bit, as we turn back to Romans 5, Paul is concluding the first part of his symphony. The, what's part of a symphony? It's not a stanza. It's a movement. Thank you. Paul, Paul's concluding the first movement of this symphony that he's been writing. And a lot of times, as, as a piece of music wraps up, or as a part, as a subset of, a, of, of, of music wraps up, there's this sort of three-part resolution, at least in Western music. There's boom, boom, and then boom. We, we did it just now. We did it with the Phil Wickham song, with Cannons. All glory, honor, power are yours. Amen. All glory, honor, power are yours. Amen. All glory, power, and honor yours forever. Amen. And it's settled. And there's a rest. There's a resolution. That's what Paul is doing as we turn back to chapter 5 this morning. He's resolving the chord. The first, the first part of this was actually like three weeks ago. At the end of chapter 4, it shall be imputed to us, verse 24, it shall be imputed to us who believe in him who raised up Jesus our Lord from the dead, who was delivered up because of our offenses and was raised because of our justification. All glory, honor, power are yours. Amen. And then we had the second part two weeks ago, the beginning of chapter 5. Therefore, having been justified by grace, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we also have access by faith into this grace in which we stand and rejoice in hope of the glory of God. All glory, honor, and power are yours. Amen. Today, Paul's going to conclude it. He's going to resolve the cord. Look down to verse 6. For when we were still without strength, in sin, lost. In due time, Christ died for the ungodly. He died for us. For scarcely for a righteous man will one die. Sometimes it happens, but not often. Yet perhaps for a good man, someone would even dare to die, maybe. 
but God demonstrates his own love toward us, toward all of us. That while we were still sinners, all of us, Christ died for us. Much more than having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from wrath through him. For if when we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, and we were, much more having been reconciled, because we are, we shall be saved by his life. And not only that, but we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received the reconciliation. All glory, honor, power are yours forever. Amen. And Paul's not done. He's not done talking about the gospel, not, 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 by, not by a long shot. In a sense, this whole letter is about the gospel. It wasn't for nothing. I, I wasn't being facetious when I said this is the gospel according to Paul, because it really is. But here in chapter 5, Paul just wrapped up his first section, his first subject, his first movement, if you want to go with that symphony idea. He's finished, mostly, his discussion about justification, He's talked about our need for it, our sinfulness, our wretchedness. He's talked about the means of it, Jesus dying in our place, substitutionary atonement. He's talked about the result of it, peace with God, the war is ended. And just now, twice, he reminded us that we get to rejoice in it. If this were a psalm instead of an epistle, this is where we would read Selah. Pause here. Rest here. Take a moment to just ponder. Just, just meditate on what we just read. Just, just enjoy the thought for a while. God demonstrates his own love for us that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Oh, that's so good. Just, just, just sit there in that goodness for a moment. How much does God love us that while we were his enemies, he sent his son to die in our place. God, you are so good. Like I said, Paul's going to go on. He's not done talking about salvation. He's finished this first topic. He's told us how and why God has saved us. But he's going to go on. He's going to talk about how God is saving us and how God will save us. He's going to talk about what God has saved us to. He's going to talk about what God has saved us for. He actually teases that a little bit in verses 9 and 10, doesn't he? Drops in a little hint, a little preview of coming attractions. Here's where I'm going next. But before we leave this discussion of justification, these last magnificent verses, there's something I believe Paul, uh, God would have us notice together this morning. Look again at the passage, and especially look at the verbs. If you want to understand what God is saying in Scripture, look at the verbs. The verbs will unlock it for you. What do you notice about the verbs in that section we just read? Specifically the verbs having to do with our justification. They're in the past tense. Christ died. Past tense, verse 6. Verse 8, Christ died for us. Verse 9, we have been justified. Verse 10, we were reconciled. We have been, same verse, reconciled. Verse 11, we have received, past tense, reconciliation. What is Paul getting at? What is he driving at? And, and what is the Holy Spirit underlining for us here? 
with this repetition? What is it that the Holy Spirit and Paul, inspired by the Holy Spirit, wants to make sure we don't miss? One word, tetelestai. The next to last word of Jesus on the cross. It is finished. It is done. It is completed. It is fulfilled. Our debt paid in full. Sanctification? Yeah. Still in process. Glorification? Yeah. Still coming. Still in the future. But justification? The erasure of our guilt, our reconciliation with God, 100% complete. Why is the Holy Spirit underlining that? And why am I emphasizing that this morning? Because a lot of times we read it, we sing it, we testify to it, but deep down I'm not sure we always believe it that we have been justified, that we have been forgiven, that we are at peace with God. Am I right? Aren't there times that we doubt that? Times we doubt it, areas in which we doubt it. I know this is forgiven. I'm not sure that's forgiven. I know this was forgiven, but I'm not sure it's still forgiven. I'm not sure it can be forgiven. I'm not sure I'll ever feel forgiven. I want to explore that last one especially this morning. Why don't we always feel forgiven, at least not with the solidity, the, the peace, the resolution, the concreteness that Paul says that we should know. And how that feeling, if we leave it unchecked, if we leave it unchallenged, will steal the joy that Paul just told us in verse 11, we should be experiencing. It should be our birthright. And how do we deal with those feelings and begin to live in the freedom and forgiveness that Jesus purchased at the cross? That's our outline this morning. That's three parts. I'm actually going to add a fourth part. Let's quickly review once more what's real. That's point number one. Let's examine how it, it, it's at odds with how we feel. That's point two. Let's look at how our feelings conspire to steal our joy and how we should, how we get to, how we've got to deal with those feelings and get back to rejoicing in forgiveness. That's where we're headed. Point number one, what's real? Paul just told us what's real. Just told us, been telling us, just told us again. When we were God's enemies, Christ died, bless you, in our place that we might be forgiven. When we were God's enemies, Jesus died in our place that we might be forgiven. C.S. Lewis called this the great exchange. Others have called it the divine bargain. One of my mentors would call it God's great switcheroo. Whatever we call it, it points at the same thing. Jesus traded places with us at the cross. He took our sin, he gave us his righteousness. That's how we're saved. As Jesus hung on the cross, God the Father looked at him, treated him, punished him as if he were us, wretched and wicked and guilty of sin. He wasn't, but God treated him as if he were. And having done that, 
Today, God looks at us, treats us, blesses us as if we were Jesus. Innocent, blameless, spotless, righteous. When we get to chapter 8, Paul's going to wrap all of that up in one verse. He's going to sum all of it up in Romans 8, verse 1, and tell us there is no condemnation, none, zero, for those who are in Christ Jesus. Question, before we go any further, is that you, right now, this morning? Are you in Christ Jesus? Is Jesus in you? I'm going to keep going, but, but, but before we do, I, I, I'm compelled to ask, when you stand before God, will you stand before him forgiven or condemned? Because there are those only two options. Jesus died in your place so that he could offer forgiveness, but you need to accept that offer. We are sinners, every one of us. We prove it by sinning. But Jesus died on the cross to satisfy God's justice, to make it possible for God to forgive us. He says, here's a free gift. Here's a clean slate. I'll, I'll take your sin. I'll give you my righteousness. The only catch, and it's not really a catch, is that like any gift, it needs to be accepted. Have you accepted Jesus' offer? Have you accepted the forgiveness that he died to purchase? And, what, and, and whether that's a brand new idea or it's a familiar concept you've just never decided what to do with, I hope that you'll consider it this morning. I hope after service you'll talk to me. I can try to answer questions you might have about it. If not me, one of the elders. If not one of the elders, their wives, they'll be in the corners of the room. They'll be by the doors. If you're online, reach out to the church reach out by messenger, reach out by phone, reach out by, by, by all of the ways you can reach out. And let's talk and hopefully let's pray that you might know the forgiveness that Jesus offers. Because the great exchange is real. When we get to chapter 10, Paul is going to tell us, believe in your heart, confess with your lips that Jesus is Lord, that he died for your sin. You will be saved. You will be forgiven. And when you die, you will spend eternity rejoicing. That's what's real. That's what's true. The problem is our feelings, we're at point number two already. What we feel doesn't always keep up with reality. What we feel does not always stay current with what's factual. There's a word for that condition. For how we can still feel condemned, dirty, forsaken, lost, even though Jesus says we're not, that word is shame. Some of you know where I'm going. Some of you are way ahead of me, but let's, let's make sure we're on the same page. We often mention shame in conjunction with another word, with another concept, shame and Guilt. They're associated in our minds, aren't they? And they are related, but they're also two distinct ideas. Guilt is a legal condition. It's a fact. I did wrong. I stole. I lusted. I gossiped. I raged. I hurt people. I did those things before God and man. I am guilty. That's just a fact. Shame is the emotion that can accompany guilt. We sometimes talk about it as feeling guilty. It's actually more than that. It goes beyond that. 
Guilt is about what we did. Shame is the feeling that we need to hide, that we need to clean ourselves or conceal ourselves because of what we did or because of what was done to us. First place we see shame in Scripture? Anyone? The garden is correct. First place in Scripture, first place in human history. Adam and Eve. Not the first time we see them. They didn't start off that way. The first time we see Adam and Eve, the Bible describes them. Genesis 20, 20, uh, sorry, Genesis 2.25. The first time we see Adam and Eve, the Bible describes them as naked and unashamed. Knowing no shame, having no shame. They were innocent, they felt innocent. But on the other side of the apple, the apricot, the orange, the, uh, whatever the forbidden fruit was, on the other side of the forbidden fruit, what were they doing? Sewing fig leaves together to hide their nakedness. They were guilty before God. They disobeyed God. But more than that, they felt guilty. They felt shame. And immediately they begin trying to cover up their shame. Instinctively, they tried to hide who they believed that they were, even though the only one to hide from at that point was God. That's how deep the feeling was. Guilt and shame both began that day, but they're two different things. It's been said that guilt and shame are twins, but they're fraternal twins, not identical twins. They were born at the same time, but they're not the same thing. Guilt is objective reality. I did something bad. Shame is a subjective belief that I am something bad. Guilt is an objective reality. It's, it's either true or not true, and we can test it and we can prove it. I did something bad. Shame is a subjective belief that may or may not be grounded in reality, but it's true in my mind, therefore it's true for me. I am something bad. Do you see the difference? I'm camping out here because this is really important. Guilt and shame are two different things came into the world together, don't always go together. Let me prove that. It's possible to have guilt without shame. When I was in my 20s, I had a friend for a while, a guy that I was running around with and sinning with. Unbeknownst to me, we were sinning a lot of sin together. He was a thief. And it took me a while to figure it out because he didn't steal from me that I know of. But, but I started realizing dude would shoplift at any opportunity and not stuff that he needed just because he could. He'd walk through a parking lot and he'd try the handles of cars to see if a car was unlocked. And if it was, well, what could I help myself You know, what can I help myself to? I, I, I looked in his trunk one time. There was all kinds of stuff that he was taking out of the back door of his workplace. He was a thief. And when I confronted him about it, when I said, dude... I mean, it wasn't saved, but still. When I confronted him about it, he just shrugged, and he said, if people really care about their stuff, they need to take better care of it. They need to be more careful with their things. He was shameless. He was guilty, but he literally had no shame. It's possible to be guilty, to have guilt without shame. The opposite is also true. It's possible to have shame with no guilt. Let me prove that to you. 
Remember, guilt is the idea I have done wrong. Shame is I am what's wrong. And it's possible to pick that up secondhand. Shame can result from being wrong, from being sinned against. If I'm sinned against deeply enough, often enough, for long enough, I can end up convinced something bad happened because I'm bad. Bad things happen to me because I'm bad and I deserve it. Or we can end up convinced something bad happened to me and now I'm bad because of it. Something bad happened to me and broke me and all the king's horses and all the king's men can't fix me. Something bad happened and now I'm bad because of it. I'm bad, I'm no good, I'm dirty, I'm wretched. I need to hide. People can't know or they'll reject me. You can have guilt without shame. You can have shame without guilt. They don't have to go together. And listen, this is, this is the big pivot point. This is the corner. If you've gone away, come back. You can have shame without guilt secondhand. You can also have shame without guilt after the guilt has been removed. After the sin has been forgiven. The fact of our guilt can be erased by the blood of Jesus Christ, but the feeling of guilt, the shame, can endure. If that hurts your brain, let's go back to what's real for a second. In Christ, we are justified, yes? Just as if, justified, just as if we've never sinned. It's more than that, but let's focus on that part. Let's focus on the forgiveness part. Psalm 103.12, God has removed our sin as far from us as east is from west. How far is that? It's as far as far gets. That means our sin is gone forever. We can't get to it even if we wanted to. It's gone. That's what's real. That's what's true. That's factual. But our feelings don't always keep up. Our guilt is gone, but our shame sometimes persists. In God's eyes, we're spotless. But in our eyes, in our heart, we might still see ourselves as dirty, disgusting, inadequate, undeserving. Especially if someone has told us that. Especially if someone has told us our sin translates into that. I remember counseling a young man who had sexually abused a younger man, a teenager. I could tell him he was forgiven, and I did, again and again, because his repentance was sincere. He was broken. He cried out to Jesus. He was forgiven, and he was forgiven by his victim, and he was forgiven by his victim's family. But the whole time I knew him, there was this war going on in his heart between the fact of his forgiveness and the feeling that he was a monster. The feeling that he was stained in a way not even Christ's blood could wash away. Except what does scripture say? Again and again and again and again, what do we read? Jesus died for our guilt and Shame. Those who look to him are radiant, Psalm 34, 4, and their faces are never covered with shame. 
Fear not, Isaiah 54.4. You will not be put to shame again and again. How is that possible? It's possible. It's factual because at the cross, Jesus took our shame. And every aspect of the cross shouts that. On the cross, Isaiah tells us, he was despised and rejected. He was shamed in every way possible. Every aspect of the cross was an exercise in shaming. He was mocked. He was spat upon. He was crucified. That in and of itself was shameful. Crucifixion was a shameful way to die. He was crucified between two thieves. That's lower than low. And he was crucified how? Naked. Consistently through Scripture, from Adam and Eve on, nakedness typifies, symbolizes shame. Do a word study sometime. Everything about the cross was designed to heap shame upon Jesus. But what was his response? For the joy set before him, Hebrews 12, 2. Hebrews 12, 2. For the joy set before him, for your sake and my sake, Jesus endured the cross, despising the shame. I quote the first part of that a lot. To my shame, I don't quote the second part as often as I should. For the joy set before him, Jesus endured the cross, despising the shame. And what despising means in this context is that Jesus scoffed at it. He mocked it back. He refused to succumb to it or submit to it because he knew it had no power. He knew it was empty. It was hollow. He knew in death he would defeat it. Even as he hung on the cross, Jesus knew his death would remove our guilt and destroy the reason for our shame. Jesus knew it. He said it. He declared it. And because he did, Paul knew it, and Paul said it, and Paul declares it. He just declared it in verse 5. We read in the New King James, hope does not disappoint. Dakota's got an ESV in front of him, and his Bible says hope does not put us to shame. That's what Paul says in verse 5. It's what Paul is going to say in chapter 10, verse 11, in every translation, whoever believes on him will not be put to shame. Whoever believes on him will not be put to shame, will not know shame, will not have shame. And that makes sense, right? If Jesus has removed the fact of our sin, there's no need to feel anything about our sin except thankfulness that it's gone and rejoicing for the cross that removed it. We don't need to feel anything about our sin except thankfulness for the cross and joy in our forgiveness. That's what's real. But again, what happens when we forget that, when we neglect that, when we pay more attention to our feelings than the fact of our forgiveness, what happens is that shame robs us. Third point, shame steals our joy and our peace and our freedom. If I'm not convinced Think about it. If I'm not convinced my shame was dealt with at the cross, I'm going to try to deal with it myself, right? If I'm not confident my shame is covered in Christ's blood, I'm going to try to cover it myself. What does that look like? 
It can look like a lot of different things, but broadly speaking, two big categories. Two, two, two main strategies we use to deal with shame. We compensate or we capitulate. If I'm still carrying shame, I might try to compensate for it. How? I might try to conceal it. I might try to work real hard to offset it, to make up for it. I might try to keep the perfect house, have the perfect body, find the perfect mate, live the perfect Instagram life. I might hide behind education or professional accomplishments, things that translate into the approval of others, things that I can point at and say, I am too worthy. Or I might throw myself into ministry, work really hard to win the approval of God. I already have it, but that doesn't stop me from trying to manufacture it. There's a lot of ways to try to compensate for shame. The one thing they all, they all have in common, none of them work. If we go back to the garden, very first efforts that the very first humans made to cover, to compensate for their shame. It's easy if we think back to see all of our efforts, whatever they are, are just like fig leaves. You've heard sermons preached on this. I know you have. Two things about fig leaves. First, they only cover temporarily. Because once you take them away from the vine, they get brown, they dry up, they crumble, and then there you are. <laughs> you need to go get new ones, and then new ones after that, and new ones after that to stay covered. They only work temporarily. Second thing about fig leaves, uncomfortable. You ever handled one? Adam and Eve were making sandpaper underwear is what they were doing. And those same two things are true for everything, for anything we try to hide behind. Everything we use to try to conceal or compensate for our shame, whatever we try, A, it won't last, two, it will become frustrating. If I'm trying to hide from shame in my job, it won't be long before I need another job. I might blame it on my boss, my work, the customers, but the reality is I'm figuring out it's not healing my shame, but I can't admit that I have shame or people will hate me, so I move on and I blame the job. If I'm running for shame in relationships, they won't last or they'll be incredibly unhealthy. Either way, when I realize my partner isn't fixing what's wrong with me, I'll get frustrated and move on or I'll stay and make sure we're both miserable. If I'm running from shame in ministry, I'll get mad at my overseer or my pastor or the church or, or just get mad at God, because look at all I'm doing to serve you, God, and this is how you repay me? This is the misery that you leave me in? I could keep going, but I think you get it. It's just variations on a theme. The thing that fig leaves all have in common, they always hurt and they never last. The other big category, I said there were two. The first is we compensate. We cover up or we offset. The second is we capitulate, which means give up. And I could have said give up, but then it wouldn't have rhymed. We give up. We just say, I am what I am. I'm filthy and I'm holy and, and it is what it is. There's nothing I can do. I'm a sinner, so I'm going to sin. Shame becomes self-fulfilling prophecy. I'm dirty, so I might as well degrade myself. You're going to reject me anyway. I might as well give you a reason. And I know you've all seen that play out. And it's, and it's tragic every time it does, Right? It's tragic every time it does, because Jesus wants so much better for us than that. The cross made us so much better than that. So what do we do? 
believe Jesus. Believe the cross. Believe his promises. How do we deal with shame? By realizing we don't. We can't. But Christ has. Go back to the garden. Adam and Eve frantically trying to cover themselves with sandpaper. What does God do? Genesis 3.21. For Adam and his wife, the Lord made tunics of skin and clothed them. God covered them. They couldn't cover themselves. God covered them. Adam and Eve couldn't deal with their shame, not in any real lasting way, so God dealt with it for them. Covered them with animal skins, things I believe but can't prove. I think he covered them with lambskin. Anticipating the Lamb of God who gave up his skin. The skin of his hands and his feet where the nails went in. The skin of his side where the spear was thrust in. The skin of his scalp where the thorns were driven deep. The skin of his back laid open under the torturer's whip. All to clothe us in his righteousness. Never asking us to mourn. Always inviting us to rejoice. Isaiah 61.10. Speaking of Israel's salvation, but also of ours. I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul shall be joyful in my God, for he has clothed me with the garments of salvation. He has covered me with the robe of righteousness. That's what Jesus did at the cross. How do we deal with the shame that we all feel at times? The temptation to hide to deflect, to offset, or just give up? We don't. We don't. What we do is remember, Jesus has. Jesus has clothed us. Jesus has covered us. Jesus has freed us from any need to hide. And and, and the best way to remember that is right here. The best way to remember that is to read that story. Not just in the Gospels, but all through Scripture. What does God do with David? David hides for more than a year under the guilt and shame of sleeping with Bathsheba and murdering her husband. What does God do? Forgives him, calls him a man after my own heart. What does Jesus do with the lepers who were rejected and ostracized by society? Living and hiding in isolation. Jesus heals them. What does Jesus do with the woman with the issue of blood? unclean in Jewish eyes, makes her clean. What does Jesus say happened to the prodigal son who wanted to hide in his father's stable after what he'd done and in shame for what he'd done? The father lifts him up out of the mud and embraces him. What did Jesus say to the woman who was caught in adultery? He refused to condemn her. He said, your past is in the past. It's what you do now that's important. What did he do with with, with Peter after Peter denied him three times, convinced that he could never be forgiven? Jesus sends for him. He says, go get Peter. Bring me Peter. And when they were face to face, he never spoke of it. Jesus never condemned Peter. Instead, he commissions him. Peter, go feed my sheep. What does he do with the woman at the well? 
The woman at the well in John 4, embarrassed about her past, about her five husbands and her boyfriend who wasn't a husband. After going out of his way to find her, Jesus takes a long detour to Samaria just to run into her accidentally on purpose. And having done that and having spoken to her, Jesus sends her. Go tell people about the forgiveness that you found here today. I could keep going, but as we wrap up, I think that you get this. And I, and I want to show you this in one more place. I want to go back to the lepers for a moment. And I want you to turn with me, put eyes on this with me. Mark chapter 1. A pastor turned me on to something this week that I'd never seen before, and I want to share it. It really pulls together everything that we've been talking about. Mark chapter 1. And when you get there, look down at verse 39. Mark's Gospel, first chapter, 39th verse. And he was preaching, Jesus was preaching in their synagogues throughout all Galilee, casting out demons. Verse 40, a leper came to him, came to Jesus, imploring him, kneeling down to him and saying to him, if you are willing, you can make me clean. Now think about this for a moment. This is important. The leprosy this man endured, the leprosy he was suffering, was not a result of any sin that we know about, and I think that we know. The leper wasn't guilty of anything, but he was unclean. Just like you and I in Christ Jesus are no longer guilty, but in our shame, we still think we are unclean. Do you see the parallel? So, so let's go forward. What does Jesus do? First thing, what he doesn't do, doesn't pull away. Doesn't say, oh, gross, get away from me, filthy. No, verse 41, Jesus moved with compassion for the one who was unclean, stretched out his hand and touched him. And I don't think it was one of these, <clears throat> I think he touched him, held him maybe even embraced him, but even if it was just took his hand, put his hand on his shoulder, it was more human contact than the leper had probably had in years. Jesus stretched out his hand and touched him and said to him, I am willing, be cleansed. And verse 42, as soon as he had spoken, immediately, dramatically, the leprosy left him and he was cleansed. But this is the part I never noticed. Are you ready? Verse 43, Jesus strictly warned him, the leper who was no longer a leper, and sent him away at once and said to him, see that you say nothing to anyone, but go your way, show yourself to the priest, and offer for your cleansing those things which Moses commanded as a testimony to them. Don't tell anyone except the priest. You've got to tell the priest, because the priest is the only one who can certify that you've been cleansed and reinstate you in polite society. And oh, by the way, no priest in the history of priests has ever seen anyone cured of leprosy, so it'll be a good testimony to them. But don't tell anyone else. The man told everyone else. Verse 45, he went out and began to proclaim it freely and to spread the matter. He was disobedient. And as a result, same verse, Jesus could no longer openly enter the city, but was outside in deserted places. What just happened? They traded places. The unclean one and the holy one traded places before the leper couldn't enter the town because he had to hide from people. He had to separate himself because he was unclean. 
Now the leper is free and he's, he's, he's running around with everybody. But now as a result, Jesus can't enter the town. He has to withdraw from people. He's, in effect, taken the leper's condition upon himself. Because that's what Jesus does. He trades places with us. We're forgiven because he was forsaken. We're accepted because he was condemned. In him, our forgiveness and acceptance are made perfect. Jesus' cleanness. This is Sam Albury, one of my new favorite pastors. Jesus' cleanness is a far more powerful contagion than any dirt we can bring to him. There's always more that's right in Jesus than, they, than there is what's wrong in us. More grace in him than offense in us. More forgiveness in him than sin in us. The very worst in us cannot compete with the best in Christ. We cannot sully him. He can only purify us. However deep our mess goes, his holiness goes deeper. We will never exhaust it. And see, when we read God's word, we're reminded of that. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. When we read God's Word, we can't help but be reminded of that. Because the Bible is the ongoing story, episode after episode, of Jesus erasing sin. We need to read that truth and keep reading that truth and keep letting that truth have a louder voice in our lives than the voice we allow our feelings. We need to let Jesus have a louder voice in our lives than the voice we allow our shame. Shame says to us, you're wounded, you're broken, you're no good, you need to hide. Follow me into darkness, you'll be safe there. Jesus said, no, you're healed and whole and holy. Follow me into the light, you'll be free there. We need to let the reality of Jesus speak louder from his word than our feelings. And as Hannah and Essie come back up, here's the other thing we need to do. We need to let the reality of Jesus speak louder from his word than our feelings do from our heart. And we need to let our rejoicing in Jesus sing louder from our spirit than our feelings do from our heart. Zephaniah 3.19 in the ESV, God promises to change our shame into praise. Zephaniah was already my favorite book in the Bible, but this just is, is icing on the cake. God promises to change our shame into praise because that's what salvation does. Beauty for ashes, the oil of joy for mourning. And, and sometimes when words fail, worship can heal. Sometimes the reality of our praise, the, just, just the fact that we can praise, that God has placed praise in our hearts, sometimes that can convince our reluctant souls it's okay to ditch the fig leaves. Because we're reminded at the cross we really did trade our shame for his righteousness. 
because of the cross, we really do get to just rest in his grace. Because of the cross, we really can trust in his blood. Because of God's love for us, we get to rejoice. Rejoice. 